All right, if you have your Bibles, take and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew back in front of you, and 1 Peter 3 is on page 1015. Feel free to use that for the message and then take it with you as you leave today so that you can have your own copy of the Bible. Well, we're continuing our I Family series. Uh, Today we're talking about I Wife. Talked to the husbands last week on I Husband. Today is I Wife. Uh, We'll try and keep myself out of trouble uh, in this. Uh, It's always a little awkward sort of thing talking to women because I always have this, you know, noise in my head. Well, of course you're going to say that, you know, you're a man. But remember that this is God's truth, all right? And you may leave here today wanting to reference me as as an animal closely related to the donkey. I, I, I get that, but listen, in the book of Judges, God spoke through Balaam's donkey, all right? So even God can deliver his messages through that. But uh, my wife is here, so she, you have full access to her afterward to make sure that uh, I'm not some backwoods, backwoods fundamentalist, even though I am from Kentucky, uh, who beat my wife and kids into submission through Scripture, all right? That, that's not my, my heart desire, and that's not how we operate at all. Uh, but ladies, I will say, I, I recognize that there is within uh, many of you, those of you who are married, uh, those of you who hope to be someday a desire that you have a godly husband uh, who leads you in a godly way. And as I've said throughout this series, uh, even though I'm talking to ladies today, these principles apply to all of us in all situations. So men, don't check out on me. Uh, teenagers, uh, those of you who may be widowed, widowers, uh, these are still applicable for every relationship and every context that we're in. But ladies, I know that there's this desire to have a husband who leads you and who leads your family and who is a man of God in his decisions and how he runs your household. And I love how C.S. Lewis phrases this about salvation. And I think it's a reminder for us that that desire comes from God as he created you for a Genesis 2 relationship with your spouse and with the family. C.S. Lewis said this about salvation. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Great, great truth for us that this world is not our home, church. And ladies, when we're in relationships, we long for, particularly in our families, for a Genesis 2 relationship to leave and cleave, as the Bible talks about, for the two to become one flesh. That is a good desire that God has placed within you. Now, the key is how you respond and act upon that desire. That's always the challenge for us. And because of our sin nature, that's where the breakdown always happens. But there's a right way and a wrong way to pretty much approach everything. I read about a Catholic priest, a Baptist preacher, and a rabbi who were all ministering on a college campus. And they were getting together to talk about their roles in ministering to, uh, to students on this campus. And they all, you know, as they talked, said, you know, we're kind of have it down pat, this whole ministering to students and reaching people and all this. You know, we, we, how do we challenge ourselves as spiritual leaders, you know, and, and, uh, and reaching new people? Well, one of them said, why don't we do this? Why don't we, instead of trying to reach people on campus, why don't we go out this week and see if we can all convert a bear? And so they did. They said, we're going to do that. We'll get back together next week and we'll share. So that next week they got together. And the Catholic priest comes in. He's got his arm and, and, and all bandaged up. It's in a sling. He's got, you know, big old black eye, a couple stitches down one side of his face. He said, man, let me tell you, I went out in the woods this week, and I found this bear, and I started reading catechism to him. Well, that bear was bored out of his mind. He started smacking me around. And so I took my holy water, and I sprinkled that bear, and instantly he became as gentle as a lamb. And the bishop's coming out this week. He's going to give him his first communion and start confirmation classes. 
Well, the Baptist preacher said, well, you know that we don't sprinkle. We, we do this thing by immersion. He said, I'm like you. I went out in the woods, and I started preaching the gospel to this bear, and he wanted to hear nothing about it. So he came at me, and he grabbed me, and I grabbed him, and we wrestled around, and we rolled over this hill. We wound up in a stream, and I grabbed that bear, and I dunked his hairy hind end. And when I pulled him up, he was gentle. He was kind. We had some fellowship right there in the wilderness. We had a potluck. Now, he was in a wheelchair, had his leg all bandaged up, you know, more bruises and scrapes. He was good. Well, the rabbi is in this hospital bed. Dude is in full traction, full body cast, IVs, tubes going in. Nothing about him can move except his lips. This rabbi lying in bed says, guys, upon second thought, I don't know that circumcision was the place to start. (laughs) Ladies, there is a right way. And there is a wrong way in approaching your husband about being a godly leader in your house. And Peter tells us the right way, which is the biblical way that God will honor and God will do a work as you serve Christ and let him lead you in this way. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, Peter says, likewise. Now, likewise is a connecting word. It's connecting the idea, the illustration he's about to give to an idea that he's already been talking about. So we need to understand that before we go forward. So go back to chapter 2, verse 13. Here is the principle. Here's the truth he starts with. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Underline those words, every human institution. This is how we relate to other people in all kinds of different ways. And then he tells us in some of these institutions who and how we are to be subject whether it be to the emperor as supreme, this is the Roman emperor, uh, the dictator, Number four, or verse 14, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, there are people in this world who will tell you that the things we're going to talk about today are, they're ancient, they're antiquated, that they're ridiculous and, and just are, are a horrible way of truth that people have used to repress other people. Well, as we follow Christ and as God blesses that, we're able to put to bed the ignorance of such foolish people who attack and would say such things. But verse 18, he gives another illustration. Servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle masters, that is, but also to the unjust. So if you've got a good master, oh, yeah, I'll submit and I'll, I'll respect and honor him. Peter says, no, even the bad ones, the unjust ones, you are to live under subject under their subject with respect to those individuals. So the principle here is that believers are to live under authority. We as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are people who are to live under authority. The first authority is that of Jesus Christ. We live under his authority and his instruction. So when he gives us a command and what to do, we are to follow that instruction. Additionally, we're to follow, we see here, that uh, live under the authority of government leaders. And he talks about slaves under their masters. And so now he goes to another human institution, another place of relationship where we relate to other people in chapter 3, verse 1. And he says, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands. Now remember, this is the third example he's building here. So that even some who do not obey the word, these are even unbelieving husbands, 
they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So take a deep breath. Let's pick this apart. Before you fire off the email, let me finish first, all right? And then we'll, we'll talk about that. But ladies, what I want you to see that Peter is talking to wives here says this, you motivate others by living a life surrendered to Jesus. And that could be for all of us, again, in any context, our work environment, our family relationships with our extended families. We motivate other people to come to Christ by us living a surrendered and fully obedient life to Jesus in our walk and relationship with him. And you'll remember this sounds a whole lot like what I challenged men with last week to make Jesus your top priority. That when we follow him above all else, then Jesus orders our lives, gives us priorities, and through that, Jesus, as he's exalted in our lives, draws people to himself. And so ladies are given instruction, according to Peter here in his epistle, to be subject to your own husbands. And you're submitting to Christ by submitting to the leadership model in your home. It's not that you're less intelligent than your husband. It's not that you don't have equal leadership skills uh, and, and abilities, but it's because Christ has designed the family, that human institution, just as he's designed every other institution in the world to have an order and a system about it. And there is a hierarchy with that that we follow under submission to Christ. And note, too, that this is to your own husband, not as some chauvinistic sinners have tried to say over time, that it's women being subservient or beneath men because they are less valuable as human beings. That is nonsense. The Bible doesn't teach that. There's actually, Peter gives a good sense of instruction to those uh, morons who profess that and teach that the Bible says that. Look back in chapter 2, verse 20. Peter says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? What he's saying to slaves there is, if you're not obeying your master and being subject to him with all respect, and you wind up getting a beating for your disobedience, that's on you. You don't get a reward in heaven because of your sinfulness. And so men, you step out, you go outside of the biblical wisdom and teaching that, that women are, are beneath you and subservient, you deserve everything you get for that attitude and that spirit about you. It's not what the Bible teaches at all. We are to follow his priorities. But you see, sin comes in, and that's where sin damages things. Remember part of the punishment back in Genesis chapter 3 for the woman was this, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So the struggle becomes women not wanting to live under the leadership of their husbands and husbands not leading well, not leading in a God-honoring example. But Peter gives us instruction here on how to move us back closer to the Genesis 2 picture of the family and of a marriage relationship. Ladies, let me just put this out here and remind you of this. You are not the Holy Spirit. You are not the Holy Spirit. That is God's work, God's job that he will do in the life of your husband. And, and constant badgering and belittling, berating and emasculating your husbands doesn't help bring about a transformation into godliness. 
in case you hadn't noticed, that strategy is not very effective. And it's not that it's just not an effective strategy. The Bible tells us it's not going to be an effective strategy. Proverbs 21, King Solomon, for the record, second wisest man in the Bible outside of Jesus. Here's what he had to say. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. And to dry, it's in the same chapter. Solomon wanted to underscore this point. Same chapter, two times, same chapter. He says it this way. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. And here's the thing. Solomon knew about this issue. He had 750 wives. Dude knows the pain of what he's talking about here. I'm going to say nagging is never the answer. It's not the answer. It makes men miserable. It shuts them down and it drives them away from the goal you wanted to move them toward in being Christ-honoring, Christ-centered in their leadership and in your home. Now, last week I gave one practical word of instruction to the men of any kind of marital advice, and it was get up. You remember we talking about that, men? Get up, get off the couch, help your wife with the groceries, help your wife with the kids, help your wife around the house. Just because you were outside of the home all day doesn't mean when you get home in the evening there's nothing to be done. There's work to be done there too. And maybe your wife worked and she needs your help. Maybe she was with the kids. She really needs your help then, all right? That, that's a huge task in and of itself. So the last week, the word I gave you as your practical instruction was get up. Help your wives. Be considerate of them. Well, ladies, I have a word of instruction for you as well. Oh, they be- you beat me to it, Travis. Zip it. Don't belittle. Don't berate. Do not attack and tear down your husband. You're not showing respect when you do that. You're not living rightly before Christ because his word instructs you to not do that. So you're living in sin and disobedience. Therefore, you cannot and should not expect God's blessing upon you or your family or your household because you're not following a biblical methodology. It's like someone saying they want to try to get out of debt, which is a biblical thing. The Bible says, oh, no man anything except the continuing debt to love one another. Debt-free is a biblical principle. But if you say, well, I want to get debt-free, so I'm going to go lie and cheat and steal to get debt-free. Well, God is not going to honor that and bring his blessing into your life because of your methodology in arriving at that. And I know some of you ladies, you're sitting there, we're having this mental thing back and forth, and you're like, well, you just don't know my husband. You just don't understand what he's like. He's lazy. He's self-centered. He's arrogant. He's prideful. He's pompous. He's a jerk. Look, I'm not going to take that from you. He may be. I've been in marital counseling for years, and it grieves me. And I mean, I, I think it's a righteous anger that wells up within me when I hear men what we are not doing and how we are neglecting and how we are abusing, if nothing else, by our neglect, our role of spiritual leadership in the home. I, I get it. I own it. And men, we need to own our part because I'm going to tell you what, a lot of us are bums, and we are not even close to where we need to be in trying to lead our families spiritually. So ladies, I'm not gonna take that from you, what your husband may be like, but two things. First of all, 
He was those things when you married him. He didn't spring that on you last week like a pimple that popped up overnight. <laughs> Some knight in shining armor and, you know, everything was all about you. And all of a sudden, wait, what happened? He's kind of selfish and he's not around. Yeah, that's been there all along. You may have talked yourself out of it in the dating relationship, but it's there. But the second thing and most important thing is this. His sin doesn't change your responsibility in living a life of obedience and surrender to Christ. Regardless of what he's doing, you still have a responsibility to Jesus first and foremost, regardless of what your husband is or is not doing. Just because he's a jerk doesn't give you a license to be a jerkette, all right? There's no book, chapter, verse on that in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite is actually true. That's what Peter is driving home here. He says, the best way for you to get your husband to lead in a godly manner is for you to live a life fully surrendered to Christ and his grace and the work within you. And when you're doing that, your life, your witness, your example will be an aroma, a fragrance that will draw your husband to Christ. It's the work of Christ through you and in you that brings about that transformation in your husband, not your nagging and being on his back and telling him where he's failing and how he's falling short. And Peter elaborates on this idea. Verse three, he says this, remember still talking to wives, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold or jewelry or the clothing you wear. And again, knuckleheads out here have said, you know, women don't have jewelry. That's not what Peter is saying. He's not saying don't have any of that stuff. He's saying, don't let your main priority, don't let your value, your worth be found in those external things. But again, what is the wisdom? What is the teaching? What are the priorities of the world? It's all about the external, isn't it? I mean, it's all about what we look like and, you know, how much we weigh, how much jewelry we have, you know, what clothes we have, the name brands we have, the cars. It's all about the external trappings. Peter says, don't worry about any of that stuff. That's not where your value, that's not where your true beauty is found. And he goes on to tell us where that is found in verse 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty. Imperishable. It doesn't die. It can't be killed. It can't be taken away. This imperishable, this beauty that you will have, the hidden treasure of your heart. And it comes from what? He says the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. God looks with favor upon that gentle, that quiet spirit. And again, this is not, and I know it has been abused with knuckleheads out there that women shouldn't speak and they have no role. Basically, you know, just cook me dinner, clean the house and don't talk to me, don't bother me. That's not what Peter is saying here. It's that quiet, that gentleness, that humility, that respect that is shown because you're honoring the institution and the order in which God has blessed or which has God has instituted for your family. And then look at the example he gives. He says, let me just tell you about an example from someone in your past. Let me just point to a picture, an illustration of someone that you will all know. He goes on, he says in verse five, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. 
She called him Lord. We'll get to that in just a minute. But he says, this is, this is the admonition here. If, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You know what's frightening? Releasing control. Giving up on those patterns and those attitudes and those habits of getting what you want and trying to manipulate things in that way. Letting go of that control and submitting. Surrendering yourself to Christ and then the leadership of your husband in the home so that Christ can do your work in leading that husband to lead in your home. But the example of Sarah, I don't know if you are familiar with uh, Abraham and Sarah and this part of their history, but there were two occasions where they were traveling into a different land and Abraham knew that when these kings saw his smoking hot wife, Sarah, they were going to kill him and take and put her in the harem. It's in there, Genesis 20, smoking hot wife. Go check it out for yourself, all right? He, he was worried that her beauty would cause him to be killed. And so what did he do? When he going into his lands, he said, honey, tell them you're my sister. Don't let them know you're my wife because they'll kill me so they can add you to their harem. Tell them you're my sister. That way they won't bother me. Well, that's exactly what happened, that these kings pulled Sarah into their harem to make her another wife. Now, later Abraham was like, well, she is my sister in the Lord, wink, 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 you know, so we weren't really really lying or being deceitful. But the key point of this and what Peter's reminding us is that Sarah followed her husband's instruction and his plan going into these places. She's like, what? You want to call me your sister? There ain't no way, dude. We are in this together. You're not going to make paying me off as your sister. She didn't reject and stand up and say, that's wrong. That's ungodly. That's sinful. You, you know, you may say we're brothers in the Lord and brothers and sisters in the Lord, but it's really not true. You know, you're just, you know, wordsmithing this. She didn't stand up against that and bow up against that. She said, okay, I'm his sister. Well, you know what happened here is that one of these kings was sleeping and God came to him in a vision and said, that woman that you're about to make your wife is married to that man. And if you follow through with this, I will punish you. And that king woke up from that nightmare, went to Abraham and said, bro, what are you doing? You're about to get me killed. Why are you doing this? And so they kind of walk through and that's what they're, well, she's my, she's my sister in the Lord. And so the king gives them stuff. He gives them money. He gives them goods. He, gives, he says, get out of here. Take this stuff and go away. You know, the understanding of that is this. Sarah's obedience brought God's blessing and favor upon their family, even though her husband wasn't leading in a proper God-honoring way. Think about that, women. You know what that says for you and your household and with your family? That when you submit to Christ... And you're honoring him by following the leadership structure in your home. God will bless you and your family even if your husband isn't leading like he's supposed to. That should be an encouragement to you. I hope and pray you hear that as an encouragement of what God will do for your obedience and your surrender to him. So Peter lines out three keys for godly submission. Respect, purity, and then the gentle or the quiet spirit. And here's the thing about those. They apply to all situations. You may be the CEO, member of the board of a Fortune 500 company sitting here, men. 
those three principles in that context, respect, purity before Christ, doing what's right with integrity, having a gentle, quiet spirit about you, that doesn't mean that you don't have a voice and opinion and you don't weigh in and you don't share, but you do it with humility. You do it with respect and with dignity as you talk to other people and engage with them, particularly those who may be uh, underneath your area of leadership. Those three principles are applicable to every situation, not just a marriage relationship. Respect, purity, and the gentle or quiet spirit. And so Peter is saying that, ladies, as you follow Christ and you follow him in this way in your family, he will bless that relationship. And back in Proverbs, I want to kind of get Solomon off the hook a little bit. He didn't just write about uh, nagging, quarrelsome women. He also praised virtuous women. Proverbs 31 is a great chapter, ladies, to look at, to read through, and to see the things that, that uh, Solomon had to say uh, about virtuous women. But in Proverbs 31, he says, an excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. You know, you don't just stumble upon jewels, right? Any of you ever been just walking in a field and be like, oh, look, there's a sapphire right there. You know, pick that up. You know, you don't just stumble upon jewels. And I don't mean like stumbling upon a good sale in the jewelry store in the mall, all right? You know, I just walking through and 50% off, there it was. We, we don't just stumble upon jewels, right? They're precious. We have to go find, we have to go search for those. And when we do find them, we treasure them because they're valuable. You know, Solomon tells us that's what a virtuous wife is like. You know, the closest we get to, to uh, being able to find a precious jewel and stumbling upon it is an oyster, right? You know what an oyster is? An oyster is a sea booger. Think about it. You'll get it later. It's, this, we were at SeaWorld, my daughter. We had uh, tickets there, and they had the, one of their things where you can kind of get souvenirs for the day. They would dive into this tank, this, you know, 15-foot tank, and grab an oyster and bring it up, and they would open it up, and you would get whatever's inside. Uh, and so we paid the money, and she got this diver. She brought it up, and she found this little pearl. And so that's as close as we can get to finding a, a precious jewel, right? And so she's got that stuck in her drawer somewhere. It's probably in with her teeth that she keeps. Side note, um, she was doing a project on World War II about a month ago, and she had this little box, and she was putting scenes of World War II. It was a focus on concentration camps. So we're in the creative process of, of how to do this. I said, honey, you know what would be really set this off and give the drive home the point of, uh, of, of the harshness and just the, the wickedness of this? I said, if you had some human teeth that we could glue in this thing, that'd be really cool. Well, she disappears, comes back two minutes later. She's got three teeth in her hand. Human teeth. Now that they they were hers. I was like, "Honey, what are you doing with teeth? Where did you?" Say? They're in my drawer. I'm like, "That is disgusting," you know. But but we we just don't find things like like precious jewels. But but Solomon says, "When you find this wife, this woman, she is an excellent thing, and you hold on to her, and you treat her well, and you take care of her, because she is beautiful, and she will bring such joy." and blessing to your life. Well, what is it that makes her excellent? Proverbs 31, he says, the heart of her husband trusts in her. The heart of her husband trusts in her. One word will describe this idea here, ladies, of you uh, and your respecting your husband and leading as Christ says and what that does to his heart. The idea is of a turtle. When a turtle is afraid and scared and thinks it's going to be harmed, what does it do? Tightens up, pulls it in, closes up, shuts down. Men are taught to do that from the youngest age. Don't cry, son. Tough it out. Be a man. Don't be a baby. 
I remember when our kids would fall sometimes, Shelly and we would see them like, look away, look away. If they see us looking, they'll cry. You know, parents, you did that, you know, don't, don't make a big deal about it. That They'll be tough and they'll move on. And we continue that with the boys, don't we? You know, don't, don't, let them, don't let them see you sweat. Was that some deodorant commercial was out there. Never let them see you sweat. You know, we talk about not showing weakness and all this kind of stuff. I mean, that, that's men are taught, man, you don't put it out there. You don't become vulnerable because somebody will hurt you or somebody will use that vulnerability against you in some way. You just don't do it. And we bring that to the marriage relationship. But Solomon praises this excellent wife and it says her, the heart of her husband trusts in her. And when that turtle trusts and he thinks the coast is clear, what happens? He sticks his neck out, sticks those feet out. He's moving. He, he's going somewhere. And a wise wife, a woman surrendered to Christ, creates an environment that draws her husband out. Here's the thing. She knows his strengths, but she also knows his weaknesses. And what is human nature for us? We, we, are, we are drawn to focusing on the negatives. You don't do this and you're not doing that. Why aren't you doing this? And we just pound on those things. If we make the weaknesses better, ah, the strengths are over here, they're fine. Let's work on these weaknesses. But he feels beat down, berated and belittled. But this wise wife knows how to lure her husband out, to draw him in, to help encourage and help build him up as he leads. And I'll tell you, Shelly has been a beautiful example for, of this in our marriage for 19 years. We celebrated our 19th wedding anniversary about a week and a half ago. Can't believe, I know I don't look old enough to have been married 19 years, but I have been. Um, but she, she's been awesome at this, you know, rather than going down the path of, dude, when are you going to pastor your family? You know, you pastor a church, but you don't do anything here. You know, how about praying with me and the kids and doing something spiritual this week? You think about doing that, you know. She doesn't, you know, berate and belittle, although she would have, you know, a huge... Uh, ammunition to be able to do that. Shelley's approach through the years at various times has been to say, hey, you know, we need to start, maybe start doing something with the kids. Here's a couple of books. What do you think about these? This one's got a story. It's got some questions at the end. Do you think we could start doing something like this with the kids? I'm like, hey, I think we could do that. Hey, kids, come on in here. You know, let's have a devotion tonight. So we do that. She helps me lead and engage in that way. Uh, we've done family nights with our kids where we have a, a kind of a full night kind of built around a devotion with some object lessons and things. She'd come in and say, okay, Friday night, we're doing this family night. Here are the two parts I need you to do. Here's this. I'll have all the stuff together. You need to be ready to lead this part of it. And then here's this section over here and she helps me do that rather than beating me down and why aren't you doing this and you know you don't care you don't love us you're not doing what you're supposed to do she helps me in that and it draws me in to say man I want to do more and I know I need to be better at this and because I trust her in that I put myself out there and she's been so responsive when I do have an idea say what do you think about this it's like hey let's do it you know she's just so supportive of that in an instant she's drawing me in she's smart that Shelly Barnes she knows. But see, that's a, a godly, a wise woman. The heart of her husband trusts him and he invests and he gives himself in that relationship. Uh, Proverbs thirty-one, twelve. she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. You know, the good, the, the no harm that's there. And your words can be very harmful. Proverbs thirty-one, thirty. charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. You know, here's the other thing about this, ladies. You may nag your husband and, and, and ride and guilt him into doing some things, but over time, he's probably going to shift back. He's going to maybe resent that, be angry about it. But when you live in the submission of Christ and allow him to lead you and you draw your husband out, and when those changes come because of the work that Christ is doing in his life, those changes will be permanent because he's not doing them for you. 
just to get you off of his back. He's doing them in obedience and surrender to Christ. And those are permanent, long-lasting changes because it's the work of Christ, not the work that you have brought to do. Now, men, I don't have time to unpack for us uh, verse 7 here, but it's interesting. Peter does give men a likewise as well. He doesn't leave us out of this being subject to authorities. It is interesting to know, parallel, that Peter gives six verses for women, one verse for men. Let me just give you the facts here. So not that that's a stereotype or anything, but here. Verse 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, that's not anything about intelligence or strength. It's actually tied to the word and the idea of porcelain, something that's precious, something that's valuable, something that's fragile, that you're to care for. You're to be delicate and gentle in an understanding way, he talks about. If not, you can crush it, you can break it, you can destroy it. Then you don't get to enjoy the functionality, the beauty, the joy of it because you broke it. All right, so he says, treat your wives, be considerate with them, honor them uh, as a weaker vessel. But he goes on to say, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Very simple. What Peter's saying is this, men, your likewise is to live under the authority of Christ and honor and be considerate and care for your wives. And if you don't do that, you're living in sin and your relationship with God will be hampered and hindered as a result of it. Very simple, man. That's a huge charge for us. Our care, leadership for our wives and our family impacts in a negative way if we're not doing it, our relationship with God. Three things here to wrap up. One, find your identity in Jesus. This is for all of us. Find your identity in Jesus. I've pounded on this for weeks. No man will complete you. No woman will complete you. No job, no award, no recognition. None of those things will complete you. Only a relationship with Jesus Christ will help us find our identity in him. Number two, repent and be forgiven. Again, men and women here. But ladies, maybe you've used your tongue to destroy instead of build up. And maybe he even deserved it. I'm not letting him off the hook there. But here's the thing. Until you repent and are forgiven of God and then seek the forgiveness of your husband in that relationship, you're not an empty vessel that Christ can fill up with his grace, his power, his presence to bring his fullest blessing to you and your family as a result. So repent of your sins and men repent of our neglect and our failures in this area. Be forgiven of those and start over fresh and anew under the Lordship and the leadership of Christ. And thirdly, it's this, forgive, forgive. And church, this is a biblical command. This is not an option in the Christian life. It is a biblical command that we are to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. And I know this is hard because we start going through this list. Well, he did this and she did that and they said this and they did that. And we rehearse all of these things from the past and why we're justified in not forgiving. But one example, and I'll say one thing and I'll close. When Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross, the most agonizing, the most torturous, the most painful moment and time of his life. It is a pain and agony that we cannot even begin to imagine what he had been through and how he was suffering on that cross. On the cross, Jesus cried out to God the Father, Father, forgive them. You may be hurt and you may be hurting. I'm not going to take that from you at all. 
But Jesus in that pain prayed that his torturers, those who have manipulated the justice system, that they would be forgiven. And we're called to follow his example, is to forgive even in the midst of our hurt and pain. This brings us back to the very simple point of what we've talked about in I family. Ladies, you can't do this in your own strength. Just like husbands couldn't do it in their own strength. Why is that? Because of week two, we talked about I self. We are the problem. What do we need? We need Jesus. Only when we live in him, surrendered to him, under his authority, can these things become a reality in our lives. This is the message of the gospel, that Jesus came and died in your place. We celebrated it in communion earlier. He died in your place. That all of these sins and this selfishness and this pride and this unforgiveness and all of these things can be put to death so that you can live a resurrected new life in his power as he lives and dwells within you and guides you in every relationship that you're a part of. But you must receive that gift of salvation. Surrender yourself to Christ. Repent of your sins. Be forgiven. Invite Christ into your life and give him control of your life. And it's a very simple thing. It's by believing in Christ. Paul speaks of it in Romans 10, that basically we pray and we say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for my sins. God, I turn from those sins. I believe that Jesus died for me. And Jesus, I ask you, would you come into my life? Come into my life, take control of my life. Lord, use me for you and your kingdom. If you've never made that decision, prayed that prayer, committed your heart and your life to Christ, I wanna invite you to do that now. Maybe you're here and you've done that, but you're like, you know what? I mean, I'm not living in the fullness of that power. I'm not living in the authority of Christ. I'm not living under the leadership of my husband. I'm not being a godly wife. I'm not being a godly husband and leading my family. And maybe you wanna come to the altar today and just fall on your knees before God and say, God, help me. God, help me do what you would have me to do. I invite you, if you need to respond in some way, that's your decision today, you come after we pray and as we begin to sing. Father, as we look at these words,